Welcome to the Together for Good podcast, a podcast specifically designed to inspire, challenge, and uplift you during your daily walk of faith. Well, friends, I had every intention of bringing you another installment of the Faith and Daily Life series. I had a time lined up uh, when I was hoping to interview a really cool person who I'm really excited to um, have a conversation with. Unfortunately, it, it, as is often the case, he had something come up at work. I think that's really fitting and ironic. Um, he really wanted to be here and be a part of it. We'll get him on in the future. But um, yeah, sometimes uh, things come up at work and we can't get to do the fun stuff that we might want to do uh, anyways. <laughs> as a result, the podcast I have for you today is a Bible study. I haven't done one of these in a long time, and I've actually had some people ask me like, hey, are you going to do another Bible study sometime soon? So here it is. This is a Bible study on Jesus turning water into wine, as described in John chapter 2. Cool story, one we've heard before, but I'm guessing you might not know some of the smaller, more intricate details of that story, and I'm so excited to share it with you. This is was so fun to put together. It's one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you also share this with friends. Um, we really appreciate you all continuing to listen for your comments and feedback. But yeah, let other people know. Go on iTunes, leave us a review. All of that helps more people find the podcast so we can continue um, to bring this great stuff, this great content out to you. As always, thanks for listening. Um, and now, without further ado, a Bible study about John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Hey, everybody. It's time for a Bible study. I'm really excited to share this one with you. This is one of my favorite stories, and you're going to see why really quickly. I think it's a lot of people's favorite story because it shows us that Jesus uh, liked to party. <laughs> Not exactly, but this is a story of Jesus turning water into wine. And it is, as some people don't realize, it's the first miracle that Jesus performed. It, 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 that's a little tricky to say because this is the way that John tells it. In the Gospel of John, that's the only place where you'll hear about this miracle of water turning into wine. And it comes in John chapter 2. And John makes it very clear this was Jesus' first miracle. Um, if you look at the other Gospels, different miracles obviously come first chronologically in the way that Mark or Matthew or Luke tell the story. But it is interesting. John's the only one that makes this specific point of like, I'm telling you this story because it was Jesus's first miracle. And as we'll get to at the end, I think there's some real significance in seeing water into wine as Jesus's first miracle. So this entire story is contained in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And it is absolutely one of my favorite stories. And you're going to see why in just a second. We're going to read through it like we often do on these Bible studies. I'll read you a couple verses and then we're going to dig into it. So here we go. John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Stop right there. Okay, so what is so important? Well, we, we got to go through the when and the where and the what about this little section already. When did this happen? It says this is three days later. What you need to know is it's three days after Jesus had called his disciples. That's what happens previously at the end of John chapter 1. And one of the things that Jesus says when he calls the disciples at the end of John chapter 1 is he tells his disciples that they will see greater signs than these. 
they're all amazed that Jesus knows their name um, and that he's calling them. And he tells them very specifically in John chapter 1, verses 50 through 51, he says, you will see greater signs than these. And so it's three days later that this greater sign takes place. One of the first, the, the first miracle takes place. It's also interesting that it's three days later. Uh, because of, of course, the whole uh, parallels to Jesus rising from the dead after being dead for three days. Three days later, a greater sign takes place. Cool. All right. But also, what we also learn in these first two verses of John chapter 2 is that Jesus, that this is all happening. This story we're about to hear happens in Cana. Where's Cana? Cana was a place known for its thieves rebels and Gentiles. So what we hear right away is that Jesus is crossing borders and going to places where most rabbis wouldn't go. This is the first introduction to who Jesus is in John's gospel. And so we're learning, oh my gosh, so he calls his disciples. He tells his disciples they're going to see greater signs than these. And then three days after that, he goes to Cana, to a place where most rabbis wouldn't go. This is a very peculiar person that we're hearing about. And so then the final point, we learn that they're going to a wedding, that Jesus is invited, that Jesus is mother. What's so significant? Well, throughout the scriptures, throughout Jewish um, writings, weddings have a strong link to messianic figures. Those who, the one who will be the Messiah, there's often a parallel to weddings. There's weddings described, uh, there's weddings connected to the Messiah in Isaiah 54, in Isaiah 62. It's also mentioned in Matthew 22 and Revelation 19. So really interesting. Messiah and weddings seem to go together. And then, of course, it's really interesting that Jesus's first miracle is at a wedding. This is the beginning of his messianic mission. The first sign of Jesus being something more than just an everyday rabbi takes place at a wedding where oftentimes messiahs are connected to. Hmm, interesting. Let's keep reading. This is verse 3 and verse 4 in John chapter 2. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. All right, so what? What's the big deal with running out of wine? Actually, this would have been a huge deal in those days and in that society. It would have been a huge embarrassment, an incredible shame for the host of that wedding to run out of wine. In those days, there was this real honor and shame society and system that existed. And so it really mattered if you had a good standing in society. There's a whole bunch written about this by New Testament scholars that have really done studies on first century Palestine, like that whole area, culturally speaking. And it really was, it was almost this currency, this unspoken currency that existed, that you would honor someone or you would shame someone through an interaction. And depending on your place within the social stratosphere, that could then influence who would do business with you, who your families could intermarry with. You get the idea. The honor and shame was everything. And so if you're hosting a wedding, you need to be a good host. And running out of wine before the wedding had ended would have been an incredible embarrassment to whoever that host was. Mary 
probably talked to Jesus and said these words in verse 3 because she felt embarrassed for the hosts. Obviously, she must have had some connection since they were. she was invited to the wedding, and, and she must have been so worried about the ramifications of running out of wine. So she's like, shoot, I got to do something. Jesus, can you fix it? They've run out of wine. And then the weird part, <laughs> right? Verse four, did Jesus just mouth off to his mother? It seems like he kind of did. He says, his hour hasn't come. But what will happen when his hour arrives? According to Jesus, the poor will be lifted up and shame will be destroyed. This is part of Jesus's mission that he'll continue to articulate throughout John's gospel, is that when his hour comes, shame and death will be no more. So it's very interesting that Mary is trying to get Jesus to make up for the, you know, to, to prevent shame from coming upon this host. And we know that when Jesus's hour fully comes to fruition, that shame and death will be no more. That whole honor-shame current really gives an incredible lens, not just to this scripture, but to so much of what we read there, because it's such an element of that culture and that day. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 5 and verse 6. Jesus' mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So how does Mary react to Jesus' outburst? She seems strangely okay with it. <laughs> like she's been through moments like this before. Maybe Jesus had a pattern of not exactly speaking nicely to his mother. I don't know. <laughs> but so she just turns to the stewards after that interaction. She's like, you know what? I know Jesus is going to take care of this. So stewards, just do whatever he tells you. It really is very much so an act of faith on her part. Now, think of the implications here, though. If we listen to Jesus, shame will be destroyed and the poor will be lifted up. That's what Jesus has promised us. If we listen to him, shame will be destroyed, the poor will be lifted up. And so maybe Mary had that in the back of her mind. Maybe she knew that Jesus was the type of person, the type of figure who would destroy shame, who would lift up the poor. And so she just says to the stewards, like, you know what? I know he's going to take care of it because this is what he's all about. But now what's the deal with these huge jars of water just hanging out at a wedding? Like, was that someone's wedding gift? Like, hey, here's some huge stone jars of water. It's better than a bread maker. No, the jars would have been there so that people could cleanse their hands before eating. You didn't necessarily like wash your hands or sanitize them like we do today, but there was always a ritual cleansing that would take place at any good Jewish festival or setting. And so that's why those jars would have been there for the Jewish rite of purification. And so what's fascinating, and John's gospel always gives us these cool little details. It tells us that there are six of these jars that are normally reserved for the Jewish rite of purification. There's six of them. What you might not know is that the number seven is the Hebrew number of completion. Seven it appears all throughout the Bible. Seven days of creation, for example. And seven always is kind of used as a symbol as saying like it, it was a complete set, but the full amount. And so for it, for John to tell us that there were only six is kind of a nod saying that the six symbolizes exactly what Jesus has said. 
that Jesus's hour has not yet come, that something is still incomplete. And really what it's also kind of winking at and pointing to by mentioning that there were six is that this miracle is not the completion of Jesus's work. The miracle that we're about to hear about is only a glimpse, a foretaste of the feast to come, we might say in good liturgical language. What Jesus is about to do here through this miracle is simply a glimpse of what he will do on a much bigger, broader, grander scale. Let's read now in verse 7 and verse 8. Jesus said to the stewards, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. All right. So we hear that there are six of these huge stone jars. Looking through, doing a little research on it, more than likely these stone jars would have been 30-gallon barrels. (laughs) Okay. Isn't that excessive, right? Jesus says, fill up all six of them. So we're talking about 180 gallons of what will soon, we find out, is wine. 180 gallons of wine. Now, I don't know about you. (laughs) That seems like a lot to me. That would take me more than a day or two uh, to work my way through. But you know what? This excessiveness, I think it's kind of the point. God's grace is abundant and excessive. And the prophets actually foretell of abundant wine as being a symbol of God's reign in the world. In Amos chapter 9 verse 13 and Joel chapter 3 verse 18, it specifically says that a sign of God's reign will be abundant wine. So this is all, again, connecting. Jesus is this messianic figure that's been prophesied about for thousands of years. And not only that, but Jesus is going to reveal to us the excessive nature of God's love, the over and abundant nature of God's love for us. But you've got to admit, right, that it's a little gross that Jesus just turned hand washing water into wine that people drink. Yeah, you never thought about that detail, did you? (laughs) Yeah, it it is kind of gross. But you know what? It's actually highly symbolic. This is my favorite part. Get ready. Buckle up. The old Jewish cleansing vessel becomes the new wine of God's kingdom. Jesus doesn't replace Judaism. Jesus transforms it into something new and something even better. The Jewish cleansing ritual is wonderful. That's great. Like, yes, we should take time before our meals to to symbolically wash ourselves to confess our sin. That's basically what that ritual is for. And Jesus takes that and then kind of reforms and transforms it into this new sign of God's abundant love breaking into the world. Whoa, I love that part that those two pieces get so closely connected in this story. And then the final question, like thinking about what we've just heard, is there anything significant about Jesus's instructions to the stewards? (laughs) And you know the answer to this. Is there anything significant? Of course there is. Jesus's instructions are very specific. He says, fill the jars, draw out the water, and take it to the stewards. This is the movement of our spiritual life. We are filled by the living water of God's grace. And we draw from that center that God has filled into us. And then we take that message of God's love out into the world. Fill, draw, 
take. You could say that this is the recipe for a miracle. (laughs) The stewards filled and they drew and they took and something miraculous happens. And when we are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and when we draw from that center and take that love and that message and that spirit out into the world, the miraculous continues to happen. Super cool. Do you see why I love this story? It's so good. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. We got two verses to go, three verses to go. This is nine through 11. When the steward, the chief steward, tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his miracles in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so what? How high of a rating would this wine have gotten on wine.com? It's hard to say, (laughs) but it was really good wine. And that little detail matters. With Jesus, everything is better than it was before. Like I said, the Jewish cleansing ritual is transformed into this miracle. The Jewish cleansing ritual is very, very good. And Jesus makes it into something even better which is really part of what Jesus's, all of his miracles are always pointing to. Something every day, something expected is going along and then Jesus comes along and turns it into something even better. This is the core, this is the hope of our faith, that God can always take what is broken or used up or old or dusty and turn it into something new and something even more glorious, something better. And then, Verse 11 there, that last verse, it's pretty much John's summary statement. John does this a bunch throughout his gospel, always trying to kind of help the reader better understand what's actually going on. And that's what he does here too, just to remind people, like, this was the first of his miracles. It was so that he could reveal his glory and and help the disciples believe in him, the disciples whom he had just called. So to kind of wrap this all up, the thing about all of Jesus's miracles all of Jesus's teachings and actions, what he is always trying to do is he's trying to reveal to us what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus actually says that specifically multiple times in the gospels, that he came to proclaim God's kingdom to bring heaven to earth, basically. And so what happens in this particular miracle is that Jesus ensures that the celebration can continue. Because if the wine had run out, everybody was going to go home. (laughs) Part of Jesus's mission is to guide us into life and life that is abundant. To lead us into appreciating and being grateful for all that God has done. Jesus wants to help us continue the celebration. And what I also think is really interesting to point out is that this is Jesus's first miracle. And it really isn't big and flashy. In fact, it's completely anonymous. The, the chief steward doesn't know. Only only the other stewards know. The bridegroom has no idea what's going on. Um, maybe Jesus's mother must have had a clue since she seemed to kind of know how this was all going to play out from the beginning. But it's really fascinating, right? It's not a big flashy miracle. It's quiet and unassuming. Only a few people know that anything happened. And yet, isn't that exactly the same as Jesus's last miracle? When Jesus is raised from the dead, there's only a few people there to kind of witness it. And it takes the disciples 
a while to piece together all the details and to finally come to a place of belief. I think there's something really interesting to notice the parallels between these two um, and to just notice the nature of Jesus's miracles, that oftentimes we don't recognize it as a miracle in the moment. It's not until much later that we piece it all together. Finally, what's really beautiful about this water into wine, as I've kind of mentioned, but I want to point out specifically, this miracle saved people from shame and it helped them maintain community. As I said, in those days, if you were shamed, if you held a wedding feast and you ran out of wine, it would bring great shame upon you and your family and it would cut you off from the community as a whole in real ways. People wouldn't want to do business with you. They wouldn't want to be seen with you for a period of time. That shame would carry out and have long-term ramifications. And so by Jesus turning water into wine and keeping the celebration going, he's saving that family from shame and helping them maintain their place within the community. This is also how Jesus's last miracle works. His death and his resurrection saves us all from shame and sin and death. And because of that, we are able to continue to be in this community together as broken yet forgiven sinners who Jesus has brought together to continue his work of bringing the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. Boom! I love this story. It's so awesome. (laughs) It's just so great. I hope you have as much of an appreciation for it as I do. That might not be possible. Um, It's just so beautiful the ways that all the pieces tie together. Um, Yeah, wanted to share that with you today. I hope you learned something new. Hope you enjoyed that. Hey, share it with some friends. You know, other people might appreciate hearing about these new angles on this old story we've heard many times before. But as always, thank you so much for listening, for your continued support of the podcast. Stay in peace, everyone.